dance before the Lord. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Tazriah, She Conceives. The address is Vaikra, Leviticus 12, verse 1 through chapter 13, verse 59. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern. Jewish New Testament publications incorporated unless otherwise noted. The written commentary was updated on March 8th of 2006, so let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim v'natan lanu et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah, amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, this is Parashat Tazriah, and in regular years, Tazriah is read with the upcoming Parashat of Mitzorah. Due to the nature of this week's discussion, I must rely heavily upon the wisdom of the Chazal, the sages of blessed memory, as well as notes compiled during my various resources. So, um, what I'm trying to do is admit that this particular topic is beyond my professional expertise. But I'll do my best as a Torah teacher, as someone who's got resources that Hashem has allowed me to utilize, someone who relies on the Spirit of God to open up the words of the text um, so that I can make proper applica application, both for myself as well as for those of, of you who are um, reading my commentaries or listening to the podcasts. So again, please pardon my limitations. I wish I was more versed in... Um, uh, Hebraic resources as well as Hebrew, the language itself. I didn't grow up speaking Hebrew, and therefore even as I utilize the rabbinic resources, um, I don't fully understand everything I read from time to time, and I have to go back and rely on the um, uh, um, the research of others. So, um, Our Sidra begins with the laws concerning a woman after childbirth. Let's read from Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 and four, two through 4. Quote, when a woman at childbirth bears a male, she shall be unclean seven days. On the eighth day, the flesh of its foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall remain in a state of blood purification for thirty-three days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing. End quote. Now, um, the verse, quote, on the eighth day, the flesh of its foreskin shall be circumcised, is marked in the Jewish Publication Society, the JPS translation, as a parenthetical remark. 
Um, it indeed appears to be set out of place, they go on to say. For the verse before it and those after it all concern the unclean state of the woman, that is, is the, her state of Tameh, or Tuma, and the process of her purification. Remember, we've learned from other commentaries that the Hebrew word Tameh refers to that which is unclean. And the corresponding, uh, well, Tameh is an adjective, to be sure, and the corresponding noun that we derive from that is Tuma. Uh, conversely, its counterpart is the Hebrew word tahor, which is an adjective, which describes the state of ritual purity, as it were, and um, its corresponding noun is taharat. Anyway, um, we have to ask ourselves an initial question uh, as far as, as we uh, uh, interact with this text, and it's a question that we're not going to get a satisfactory answer from, I'm afraid, but we'll ask the question nonetheless. Why then is the commandment to circumcise a son placed smack in the middle of the laws concerning the woman at childbirth? And from that, there's a subsequent question involving why we get a double, um, a doubly long uh, period of tuma uh, for the woman if she gives birth to a female versus if she gives birth to a male. Why the uh, extended period of uncleanness? Well, going back to the original question as far as circumcision and finding it right in the middles of the laws concerning the woman at childbirth, several answers to this perplexing question have been suggested. An explanation which seems not to stray too far from the plain sense of the text, the Peshat, uh, can be found in Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, or Targum Yerushalmi. Um, in this particular Targum, uh, and by the way, a Targum, for those of you who aren't familiar, a Targum is an Aramaic translation with... Um, commentary to the ancient Masoretic text. What happened in the first century was um, in the time period of Yeshua the common person uh, had lost as it were the Hebrew tongue the, the mother tongue and Aramaic was was the prevalent spoken language according to many scholars and so because Hebrew was lost whenever the Hebrew scriptures were read in the synagogues it required an additional um, Aramaic speaker who would come along and translate and or um, explain the Hebrew text that was being read by the Hebrew speaker, by the, uh, the scribe or whoever was designated to read the Shamash. And at any rate, um, a Targum um, elaborated on the Hebrew text rather than just doing kind of a word-for-word -word translation from the original into the receptor language, from Hebrew into Aramaic. The Targum actually went so far as to explain difficult nuances and sayings in the Hebrew text. And so what eventually happened is the Targumim got written down. Now we have, ex have, sur we have existing um, surviving manuscripts of these Targumim. I think there's about four or five different versions. Pseudo-Jonathan, Neophyti, uh, Ankalos, and those are just three that I can think of off the top of my head. At any rate, um, these Targums are helpful in um, uh, tracing some of the original Hebraic slash Aramaic thoughts of the first century. Uh, really interesting uh, resource. I, I highly recommend them. At any rate, let's look at the Targum. Um, they render this verse uh, as such, starting with verse 4. Um, they render it thus, And on the eighth day she shall be permitted to her husband, and as for the son, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. End quote. That is to say, the eighth day, which is the day of circumcision, obviously, also marks the day of the mother's clean period, her period of um, taharat. If you'll recall, um, she was unclean for seven days. And then on the eighth day, 
Actually, she took a mikvah on the third day and then a mikvah on the seventh day, and then on the eighth day she was clean. So um, the Targum tries to draw a correlation between the um, brit milah on the eighth day, the circumcision, as well as the mother coming out of her state of un, uh, of uh, tuma. Um, so it, again, her clean period for, as we know, uh, the 33 days that fall the seven unclean days in the case of the birth of a son, and uh, again, uh, um, the seven days as verse 12 12, chapter 12, verse 2 makes clear, are equivalent to the seven days of the of her tuma, the ritual uncleanness, in the menstrual period, during her period of Dida. Um, these are the days of ritual cleanness during which marital relations are permitted. So, um, again, uh, we, we are seeing a correlation between the eighth day that she comes out of her tuma, out of her state of tuma, for the birth, as well as the... Um, uh, the the the, uh, um, the corresponding with the eighth day that the baby boy was to be circumcised, the boy. So so too, if you recall, the sixty-six days following fourteen unclean days after the birth of a daughter. Now the Torah, according to the Targum, seeks to draw a connection between the mother's ritual purity and the mitzvah of circumcision. Essentially, saying as follows: Here's here's my summary of what the Targum is trying to teach us. On the eighth day, when the days of purity of the mother commence. On that very day, the son shall be circumcised. And again, I think that's a fairly, um, a fairly logical explanation to the otherwise unanswered question as to the timing of the events. Now, this was apparently how the Tana um, Rabbi Simeon Bar Yochai understood the order of the verses, as we are told in the Talmud. Let's turn now to Tractate Nida, 31b, which the Tractate Nida has to do with um, issues revolving the uh, uh, ritual impurity of a woman, especially as regards to menstruation and things like that. That's what the term nida in Hebrew means. It refers to her menstrual, menstrual, menstrual cycle. Uh, here's what the Rabbi Simeon has to say. Quote, Disciples asked Rabbi Simeon Bar Yochai, Why does the Torah command circumcision on the eighth day? He said to them, So that not everyone be rejoicing while the mother and father are sad. Hmm. Rashi explains that until seven days have elapsed, she is forbidden relations with her husband, but from the eighth day onward, she is permitted. Hence, the reason for the circumcision on the eighth day is that this is the first day of the of the first day that the mother can resume relations with her husband. So again, we find um, more or less um, uh, agreement across the board with the rabbis as to the cor correlation between the two time periods, the eighth day of circumcision when compared to the eighth day of her purity. Now, a different approach, however, is based on the symbolism of seven and eight. Now, we're going to play with the numbers for a little bit, all right? And this is taken by Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. Let's see what he has to say. What is the connection between the mother's unclean state and the commandment of circumcision. The seven days of the mother's impurity as a result of birth symbolize the coercive force of the laws of nature, seven being the natural weak, over which a person has no control and in which a person has no liberty of free choice, or liberty or free choice. The commandment of circumcision, in contrast, is an expression of moral liberty and free choice. A person can rise above his natural being, that is eight symbolizing one above the natural, you get it? Eight is in addition to the seven. Um, and by way of the commandment of circumcision, can reach a higher state, supernatural as it were, thereby endowing himself with the sanctity of the Jewish people. Birth 
I'm sorry, birth and its concomitant impurity thus relates to the commandment of circumcision as follows. And this, again, is a summary of, um, of, uh, of Rabbi Hirsch's uh, statement above. The natural state of the mother, impure after childbirth, and of the son, as yet uncircumcised, are both upgraded, as it were, and improved by circumcision on the eighth day. So again, if we, if we go off into kind of a midrash on the timetable, then Rabbi Hirsch's comment seems to... Um, lend a weighty support to that. After all, the Jewish people held circumcision in high regard. So high, I might add, that in the first century, circumcision itself was seen as the covenant identifying marker necessary for anyone wishing to participate uh, in the covenant made between God and Israel. To be sure, circumcision was um, mandated for males, and it was mandated for proselytes, anyone wishing to join the covenant people of Israel. Today, circumcision is um, is a sign of the covenant, it, it, and it's been recognized uh, by Jewish and Christians, by Jewish people and Christians alike, as a sign of the covenant. Uh, unfortunately, the church has, um, how should I put it, relaxed their understanding of of the requirement of circumcision as it pertains to uh, the verse that we're reading here. It's an unfortunate um, view, in my opinion, because to relax the um, the requirement of circumcision is to relax our understanding of the uh, participation of the covenant that God made with Abraham and ultimately with Moshe. If you'd like to read more about my thoughts on circumcision, pull up Parashat, um, let's see, where is it? I want to say it's um, Parashat Lech Lecha, the commentary to um, Genesis chapter 12, where um, God asks, well, is it? Is it Lech Lecha? I'm not in front of my computer right now. I believe it's Lech Lecha, but if it's not Lech Lecha, um, just go to our website, pull up the little search box, and type in the phrase circumcision, and look for the commentary that talks about, um, well, you know where, I'll go ahead and tell you this. Go to the commentary to Galatians under the under the commentaries um, uh, section under the commentaries tab under more lessons. Click on the exegeting Galatians commentary, and I deal with circumcision right in the first paragraph, okay? Let's get back to my commentary here to Parashat um, Tazriah. Indeed, the sages view the commandment of circumcision as bringing about perfection and improvement. Uh, circumcision symbolized the obligation and ability of human beings to improve themselves and the world in which they live in. The following selection from Midrash uh, Tanhuma on this week's reading, Parashat Tazriah, makes that point. All right, Let's pull a uh, section now from that particular rabbinic resource. Midrash Tanhuma to Parashat Tazriah reads this way, quote, Once the evil Tinius Rufus asked Rabbi Akiva, whose deeds are finer, those of the Holy One, blessed be he, or those of flesh and blood? He answered, of flesh and blood are finer. Tinius Rufus said, but can a human being make heaven and earth and the like? Rabbi Akiva responded, do not give me an illustration of something that is higher than the creatures and over which we have no control, but give an example of something that pertains to human beings. He said, why do you ask, I'm sorry, why do you circumcise yourselves? That's of course, uh, um, that's uh, not Rabbi Akiva's, but that's Tinius, that's Rufus's question. Rabbi Akiva answered, quote, I knew you would ask me about this particular thing, therefore I prefaced my words by telling you that the deeds of flesh and blood are finer than those of the Holy One, blessed be he. Tinius Rufus said to him, quote, If he wished to make, if he wished males to be circumcised, why do they not come out from the womb that way? 
Rabbi Akiva responded, As for your argument why males are not born circumcised, the answer is that the Holy One, blessed be He, gave commandments to the Jews for no other reason than to refine them by means of their observance. End quote. Now again, that's an interesting um, conversation between a Jew and a non-Jew. Um, I'm not saying that I completely agree with it, but it does cause us to stop and think. Um, number one, why did God not make males circumcised from the word go? Is there some blessing directly associated with stepping into the mitzvah that God intends for we males to grab a hold of? I believe there is, but, but now is not the time for that discussion. It, it does show up in my um, commentary to exegeting Galatians right there in the first paragraph, as I mentioned earlier. Um, what conclusions have we reached concerning um, this mitzvah on the eighth day, if any? Let's turn now to Messianic author Marvin, uh, Marvin R. Wilson, um, who's going to give us his insight concerning purification in the time of Yeshua. I believe this comes from his book, um, Our Father Abraham. But I didn't put the source there because uh, at the time that I lifted this quote, um, which was, you know, quite a while ago. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't using footnotes, and since then I've improved my writing style and I've begun to use footnotes. So I apologize that there's no um, source as to where this comes from. Uh, if I do find it at a later date, then I'll go ahead and add it to the commentary. But let's go ahead and read the quote anyway. All right. This is Marvin R. Wilson. Quote: By the time of Jesus, bathing in water was an established part of the purification process following menstruation. But nowhere in the Bible is there mention of the menstruant bathing in water. Instruction on purification through the use of the mikvah, the ritual bath, by menstruants may be traced to the time of the sages. An entire tractate of the Mishnah, Mikvahot, is devoted to immersion pools. To this day, for Jewish women committed to halakha, which is religious law, immersion in the mikvah is considered obligatory before marital relations can resume. And again, let me add um, that this bears uh, reference to us um, studying uh, the woman coming out of her period of Tumah and into a period of Tahara. According to, this is Wilson again, according to Leviticus 12 verses 1 through 8, because of the bleeding associated with childbirth, a woman is ceremonially unclean after giving birth, just as she is unclean during her menstrual period. Again, that's why I mentioned that the laws of um, Nida pertain both to childbirth as well as to a regular um, menstrual cycle. Marvin Wilson goes on to say, the uncleanness is for seven days if she bears a boy, in verse 2, and for 14 days if she bears a girl, in verse 5. The mother must wait 33 additional days after a boy and 66 days after a girl to be finally purified from her bleeding, which is verses 4 and 5. At the end of her time of uncleanness, she is to bring a sacrifice to the priest, reference verses 6 through 8. The Synoptic Gospels record an account of Jesus coming into contact with a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. You can read that in Matthew 9, 20 through 22, Mark 5, 25 through 34, and in Luke 8, 43 through 48. Whatever the cause, Marvin Wilson goes on to say, of her loss of blood, the Levitical restriction, especially chapter 15, verses 19 through 33, render her ritually unclean, that is, and I might add ritually unclean, that is to say she's forbidden from, from approaching the Holy Sancta, the tabernacle, the temple, etc. Um, she's rendered ritually unclean, and likewise anyone and, any, anyone and anything she might touch, thus making her an exile among her own people. The moment the woman touched the cloak of Jesus, however, she was healed by the power of God and her defilement removed. 
The New Testament is silent about whether the woman's actions rendered Jesus ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and about her obligation to bring the prescribed offerings following cessation of her discharge. And you can reference Leviticus 15, verses 28 through 30. End quote. Now that's Marvin Wilson. I like how he brought up the fact that um, the, the Torah de, or the uh, Gospels don't mention whether or not Yeshua became unclean with her contact with her touching him. According to the rabbis, there is a there was a, a, a belief that when the Messiah comes, that uh, Tumah would flee from him. That is to say, ritual un- impurity would flee from the Mashiach. Therefore, whenever he came in contact with lepers and things like that, he would not contract Tumah, but rather Tumah would flee from him. That's not too far from exactly what happened. Let's go on in my commentary on the top of page 4. Uh, I have a quote um, from the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership. Let's read this um, quote um, and provide a final analysis to our question of the matters pertaining to um, a woman and her her um, tumah during the uh, period of her giving birth to a child as well as the uh, uh, relationship to circumcision. Here's the quote. The beginning of Parashat Tazriyad describes the law regarding a woman after childbirth. She first goes through a purity of ritual impurity, then through a period called blood purification. Both of these time spans are twice as long after bearing a daughter as after bearing a son. This discrepancy is profoundly disturbing. Even more troubling is the requirement that, after her purification period, the woman bring a burnt offering and a sin offering to the temple. Why a sin offering? Isn't childbirth a mitzvah? How has the woman sinned? Perhaps the Torah anticipates that when a woman gives birth, she may be overwhelmed by her accomplishment. She feels so proud of what she has done that she takes full credit for the glory of new life. In doing so, she ignores the major role played in the miracle of reproduction by God, whose hand is seen in all such natural wonders. Her lack of humility and failure to acknowledge God, uh, God's role are her sin. Again, let me just in- insert my own uh, thoughts here. Uh, before I continue, I'm not saying that I completely agree with their uh, ass- assertion of the um, the details surrounding bringing a double uh, the the double waiting period behind giving birth to a girl as a, as opposed to giving birth to a boy. However, since the Torah is silent there, um, their guess is as good as mine. I might add. Um, let's read. Let's read on. Quote. Then why double periods of impurity and purification for a daughter? One possibility is that giving birth to a virtual copy of herself, a girl who will someday also be able to create life, increases a mother's pride and so requires a longer punitive period. Another is that the period of impurity after bearing a son is interrupted by the Brit Milah, the circumcision, of Leviticus 12, verse 3. This powerful ritual reminds the proud mother of God's role in the birth and in the continued life of her son. Since ancient Judaism had no covenant ceremony for daughters, a longer impurity slash purification period was required. And then they go on to conclude, quote, modern T has taught us to recognize the absolute covenantal value of Jewish women and the resultant development of covenantal uh, covenant rituals for newborn daughters enables them, like their brothers, to remind us of God's presence in the world, end quote. A very good midrash. I've heard the one before about uh, her, the woman giving birth to a virtual copy of herself from various uh, rabbinic and Christian sources, trying to perhaps fill in the gaps as to why the Torah doesn't explain the um, differing waiting periods. Again, until Mashiach comes, perhaps we'll just have to wait 
as to the proper answer. Or maybe we can ask Moshe when we see him. Let's move on. Chapter 12 provides the background to a well-known incident recorded for us in the Brit Harasha, in the, the Renewed Covenant. In Luke's Gospel account, we find Yeshua's Torah-observant parents making fulfillment of this very mitzvah. Let's read about that, alright? Quote, this is out of the New International Version, Luke 2, 22 through 24. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Quote, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, end quote, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons, end quote. Again, it's wonderful to um, observe that Yeshua's, that Yeshua's parents were Torah compliant. This again provides for us a perfect model of what it's like to walk into God's ways with the understanding that God's ways are good for us. We don't have any direct hint or indication that the parents of Yeshua believed that the Torah of Moshe was a burden around their neck, only to be lifted once their son grew to maturity and went to the cross and suffered and died for their sins. There's no such hint of any such hermeneutic practice or any such hermeneutic understanding as given by the writer Luke there. So why we insert such a hermeneutic into the um, New Covenant text is beyond my understanding. The church has inherited... I apologize, there's an airplane... I'm actually sitting outside since the weather is so nice. There is a um, a jet flying over my head here, and I can barely hear myself talk. Uh, so let me just give it a second here while the jet goes by. Okay, that seems to be good. All right, I hope you could hear me. Let me just um, uh, uh, let me just summarize what I was saying there. Um, the the relevant texts in the apostolic scriptures that give a, us a hint as to people complying with the Torah of Moshe give no subsequent indication that the Torah of Moshe was a burden for them. And so we in the modern church have engineered a theology that teaches that the Torah is some sort of burden for everyone and that Yeshua has come to liberate us from such a burden. But such a misunderstanding of the Torah cannot be supported from any part of the Bible itself. So why we continue to teach that from our pulpits is a shame. It's 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 a uh, it's beyond me. We need to move past such an understanding or misunderstanding that the Torah is a burden. The Torah is not a burden. The Torah properly walked out with the Spirit of God is a blessing to anyone who walks into it. So, um, going back to my commentary, did Yosef or Miriam question the validity of application of these instructions? Did they say, you know, why should we do this? The Torah, again, the Torah is a burden. The Torah doesn't make sense. Did they question these laws? If they did, we certainly don't hear about it in the Torah or about, uh, hear about it in the Gospels. I'm sure that curiosity and speculation were part of their human experience as well, just like we've been speculating for the first 20 minutes or so of my commentary. Yet we could learn, we today could learn a great deal from those who do not feel the need to know why everything is just so. All right, let's move on. This next section in my commentary is entitled... Tamei, unclean. Chapters 13 and 14 discuss the topic of what is commonly called leprosy. The exact Hebrew word, however, tzara'at, is used over 20 times in these two passages alone. The word is used to describe an infectious skin disease. In most cases, the skin disease renders the inflicted person tamei, uh, that is, ritually impure. They become a tumah. The instructions given to the priests 
is to examine the individual, and if found unclean, they were to leave the commonwealth of the camp. You can reference verses 45 and 46. An interesting side note to this pronouncement is that anyone coming in contact with the unclean was himself rendered unclean. That is to say, tumah can be spread between individuals, which is exactly why someone contracting the um, disease known as tzara'at was to be um, put out of the camp, lest he uh, inflict or infect anyone else. Similarly, this type of disease, if chronic, was seldom, if ever, completely healed. There are isolated incidents, uh, individuals such as Naaman in our Haftar portion, of 1 Kings 4, verses 42 through chapter 5, verse 19, um, that were completely and miraculously healed, but um, but the, the overall picture is bleak as far as anyone contracting this disease becoming completely healed. And the reason is, is because the Torah doesn't provide a healing remedy. It merely provides um, prescription prescriptionary measures for those who had contracted Tzara'at and what to do if they contracted it and how and when to see the priest to see if the um, skin disease has cleared up. Yet yet one of the signs among many signs that was said to follow the genuine promised Messiah remember how I talked about that one of the signs was that was that um, Tumah would flee from him? Well, another one of the signs was that the healing of Tzara'at would come from the Messiah, and that would be one of the signs that he was the genuine article and not a phony. You can read Matthew eleven two through six, as well as Matthew twelve twenty two and twenty three, and John nine verses one through forty one, and you can see where Yeshua is healing people with leprosy, that he's actually demonstrating his authenticity by healing people who were otherwise in a place where they couldn't be healed. Why wouldn't the uncleanness of the afflicted render the Messiah unclean? That's a good question. Obviously we answer because he's Messiah, right? Because he has no uncleanness in him. Therefore all sin has to flee from him. All Tumah has to flee from him. The proof that the coming Messiah was a genuine and not a phony was demonstrated not only that he would heal the afflicted individual, Okay, as opposed to the priest just pronouncing him clean or unclean, but not giving any, uh, not allowed, being allowed to take any credit for doing the healing, but that he himself would not become defiled. All right, even in the case with the high priest, he had to be careful not to become defiled himself when he's pronouncing the the state of um, tumah or tahor, tahara. In Yeshua's example, however, given in Matthew eight uh, verses one through four, our Lord instructed the former leper the one he just healed, to go to the Kohen, to the priest, as a testimony unto them. A testimony of what? This was done for at least two reasons, at least I see it. Number one, um, Yeshua instructed the, the, the leper, the former leper, to go to the Kohenim for two reasons. Number one, in obedience to the very mitzvah found in our current parasha. Remember, Yeshua was Torah compliant. This vindicates Yeshua's adherence to the Torah of Moshe. Far from being a, a, a lawbreaker, Yeshua complied with the Torah of Moshe. We've got to get this notion out of our head that Jesus came to uproot the Torah. He did not come to uproot the Torah and to render it useless or void. He came to properly establish and explain the Torah of Moshe because it was grossly misinterpreted and distorted in the first century. I might add it is grossly misinterpreted and distorted in the 21st century, but that's a different lesson. My point in bringing this out is that Yeshua 
is not going to heal someone and then just tell them go on their merry way. Yeshua knew the Torah and Yeshua also was aware that if a person who had leprosy or tzara'at uh, was healed, then he was to go to the priest and show himself to the priest. So that's reason number one. And number two, the reason he sent the leper on his way, or the former leper on his way, was to authenticate the miracle. Alright? Witnesses authenticate the genuine miracle, thus proving its claims to messiahship. Isn't that wonderful? Yeshua knew the rumors. There's nothing in the Torah that says that when the Messiah comes, that Tuma is going to flee from him. This was just a, 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 a commonly held belief that the first century Judaisms were teaching among their adherents. And God, being Yeshua himself, knew, or Yeshua being God himself, knew um, this rumor, or knew this clever saying, you know, this, this, this oral tradition, as it were. And so Yeshua thought, you know, hey, I'm going to go ahead and step into this tradition and prove my messiahship by um, authenticating the miracle, a miracle that otherwise could not take place. Remember, there are no reported um, incidences of, of, uh, of people with leprosy being healed in the Tanakh. Again, Naaman is a welcomed exception. But other than that, um, it took a miracle is my point. All right? The priest couldn't do it. God had to heal the person with Zara'at. In every single instance where Yeshua healed the inflicted or raised the dead, his holiness did not decrease. His state of clean never diminished. On the contrary, disease and death always fled from his presence. And again, reference the quote above by Marvin Wilson. Okay, Surely Yeshua was the Messiah for those days. And using a Kalvachoma argument, surely he is the Messiah for us today. Only he can provide the genuine healing. Yes, we, his disciples, his shlichim, his sent ones, his talmudim, his students, we are his hands and his feet, but the healing comes from him. Thus we learn in at least these two instances, the two that I mentioned above, the one involving Yeshua's parents and the instance with the leper, we learn that Hashem's masterful instructions, as outlined in the Torah, demonstrate their usefulness on a grander scale than just for those participants of the pre-Common Era community. I've heard people say, well, you know, the Torah was just for them back then. But now that we've got Yeshua, we don't need the Torah. That doesn't, that, that doesn't follow through with the examples I just gave you. Are you trying to tell me that we don't need healing today? Are you trying to tell me that we don't need deliverance? That we don't need God's power in our community? Far from it. I'd say that we need it more now than ever. Lord, send us your healing. Send us your power. Send down your spirit within the, 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 the lives and the hearts and the community of those who love you and want to serve you and want to be obedient to your commandments. Send us your healing, Lord. Heal us and we shall be healed. His specific instructions, every minute detail, would serve as historical and prophetic fulfillment of the life and the ministry of the greatest Kohen Hagadol, the greatest high priest that the nation of Israel would ever know. And as I draw my commentary to a conclusion, thanks be unto our heavenly Abba that as spiritually afflicted individuals, we no longer have to remain outside the camp. If you've got spiritual tzara'at, you no longer have to remain outside the camp. 
Sometimes, in the case of the individuals of the Tanakh, he had to remain indefinitely outside the camp. Why? Because the priest of that day could not heal you. He could only diagnose the problem. And if God's mercy fell on you, the priest would recognize that and pronounce you clean. However, let's make an application for today. When our unclean encounters the holiness of the prophet from Nazareth, our disease must flee. We have no need to go about crying, Tame, Tame, unclean, unclean. Rather, we have the freedom to proclaim, Tahor, Tahor, cleansed, cleansed. Amen, amen. The closing blessing is as follows. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. Thank you.